This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Welcome to the Climate Action Show. My name is Vivian Langford, and salut, Babette. We would like to pay our respects to the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, from whose land we are broadcasting at Radio 3CR, and the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, where we can be heard at Radio Skid Row. Climate action in the most vulnerable countries is beginning to sound like a great cry of injustice. The big subject at COP27 in Egypt will be financing the Green Climate Fund, plus loss and damage. I talked to Dorothy Guerrero from Global Justice Now, and she tells us about her family home in the Philippines, destroyed by flood, and her parents moving twice over because of climate events that are just increasingly making life hard for them. Dorothy will report back to us after attending COP27 in Sharm el-Sheikh, but if you are moved by what she says, you can take action now. Look up Climate Action 3CR to find links to all the action she proposes and that you can support. For me, doing this program is really, it's called Climate Action and it's about you taking action. If you hear information that you can act, take action on, please do. I never hear back from the listeners, hardly at all, but I would love to know that some of you are inspired to take action in whichever way you can. A lot of the things towards COP27 are signing petitions and getting uh, subjects up to the top of the list. So these are things that you can do at your, <laughs> at your computer desk. But first off, we will go to an event at St. Patrick's Cathedral in Parramatta. Senior faith leaders are calling on our Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, to restart Australia's contributions to the Green Climate Fund. It's a terrible shame that we ever stopped contributing to that. And some countries are now putting in large amounts like Denmark, $12 million. Australia should be way up there as a contributor. I spoke to the Venerable Bhante Sujato, who is a leader in the Theravadan Buddhist tradition, and he doesn't mince words. Then a Wiradjuri elder, Paul Newman, invites us all to really care for country and to see what flows from that. Lastly, Maria Timon, who is from Kiribati, talks about some of her sacred places, such as a cemetery and parts of her ancestral village, which are now underwater. This event was created by the Australian Religious Response to Climate Change, and events like this were being held all around Australia, many, many events around Australia, calling on our Prime Minister to stop subsidising fossil fuels, to stop new coal and gas, and to sign up with the Fossil Fuel Non-Proliferation Treaty. These are hard asks. These are things that need absolutely government effort. And I think the idea of the religious response is to tune into the bigger values, the bigger picture, the real reason on which most people are unified that we want to save the world that we're living in. 
Okay, I'm here at Parramatta Cathedral and I have Wiradjuri Elder, Paul Newman. And I'd just like to ask him to say a little bit to us what he told the audience here. Yes, for sure. Uh, yeah, um, in talking with the audience today at the uh, Faith for Climate Action um, gathering, um, you know, I was able to, uh, you know, in doing an acknowledgement of uh, First Nations country um, of the, of the local area, but highlighting the, um, you know, the um, importance of caring for country and, and noting that uh, First Nations people ha have, for many millennia, been caring for our country, and uh, and you know, in in the world today with so many challenges. Um, broadly challenges, particularly around climate as well. Um, it's important that um, all people come together because we're all custodians of country. Yes, I love that, that you invite us all to be caring for country because I think a lot of city people especially don't really get it. Can you just explain how, like where would a first step be for people to start really caring for country? Yeah, I um, think just just being mindful of... of um, what country uh, means to people and, and the best way to, to note that is just to um, um, say to people um, we all have stories, we're all part of families, local, regional and we're, we're part of a global story so um, you know it's so just to keep that in mind uh, and, and we all can do our little bits so just to try and plant the seed for people to think about uh, what we call country but uh, country just isn't the earth but uh, the soil so, so to speak it includes everything around us the the, the animals and the uh, the moon the stars and you know the wind the air we breathe and 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 that w we all rely on all of those elements in the world and and so it's uh, you know that caring for country um, encompasses all of that now and in perpetuity. Thanks very much. And I have Bhante Sujato here who is a Buddhist monk and I want to talk to him a bit some of the tin tacks of being a climate activist in Australia. I feel we get the fossil fuel award of the year every year at these COP conferences uh, along with Russia and I would like to ask you what's your thinking about the way forward? Uh, well, one of the one of the global initiatives now is the uh, fossil fuel non-proliferation treaty. Now, one of the purposes of that, uh, modelled after a nuclear non-proliferation treaty, to acknowledge like the seriousness of it, and it acknowledges not just our domestic but our international responsibilities. And Australia, as one of the leading exporters of fossil fuel, is one of the leading exporters of carbon emissions and we subsidise our Australian lifestyle at the expense of those who are too poor to be able to survive and be able to live when their homes are flooded or when they are, go under the seawater. Well, the group here has written a letter today to the Prime Minister asking him to participate actively in this treaty. What would that look like? Well, uh, I mean, the Pope has endorsed this treaty. It's not as if it's a kind of a radical extremist thing. Uh, it's essentially what it means is that we take responsibility for our actions and that we decide that as Australians and as people who 
hopefully uh, have compassion and care for those all around the world, that we understand that we need to act in a way that is not just good for us, but also is good for the rest of the world as well. It is not us versus them. It is all of us. We are all of us. In, we are all of us share this planet and we have to take our part and Australia has resources we have land we have capacity we have technology we have an educated and skilled and highly motivated workforce we have all the things that we need to make a huge difference we just need leadership from the from the politicians who can try to set that direction and inspire people to do better I, I took the opposite view that I think we need to inspire the politicians because I don't think their head can be in the right place because they have many more forces pulling them. I imagine all the lobbyists pulling them. Sorry, sorry to dis <laughs> disagree with a, a monk, but honestly, I just think it must be to us, the, the populace. We've now voted for a slightly better government. We're voting for slightly better policies, but what's the mindset we need to really, we had an Aboriginal person saying we need to care for country, all of us, we need to care for country, but caring for people in Pakistan, caring for people in Kiribati, how do we soften those hard hearts and influence our leaders to actually take that path? Yeah, uh, look, absolutely, it's not, just, it's not just one person or not just another, but we need, I, I do think that you know, politicians have a crucial role to play in articulating a vision and inspiring people to follow that vision. And I think that politicians up to now have massively failed that. I think there have been some gestures towards it at various points in history, but there's never really been any substantial follow-through. And that's where, you know, a, a moral calling is one thing, but a morally responsible behaviour is quite another. So yes, the Australian population needs to get out there. We need to make sure that when we vote, that we vote for the climate. And we don't just vote for our own perceived short-term interests because we're voting for our children. That's it, we're voting for our children, I mean seriously. And I was just reading in the paper today people talking about the anxiety and depression and stress suffered by children. So many feeling hopeless and powerless and people saying, why is this? <laughs> because we burnt their future and set it on fire. Uh, so we need to provide a world that we are going to look forward to being able to live in. We have that choice. Yeah? This is the, we're, not, we're not the victims of our circumstances. We, we, humanity, we created this world and we participated in that and it's up to us to, we can create a different world. That's all. We can make different choices and create a different world. That's all. <laughs> well, before today, overnight, a lot of people around Australia and around the world, I think, were meditating and spending a night of vigil and prayer. What role do you think spiritual practice has in making this change? One of the things that I regularly do is uh, meditation with uh, the scientists and staff at the CSIRO and we also do programs for climate resilience and you know we see so much distress and so much concern not only from the reality of the physical reality of the world we're in but also because of the disparity between what's needed to happen and what the government policy is actually making happen and that feeling that 
we've given you all the information, we've given you the knowledge, it's up to, it's up to the politicians to act on it. And so that kind of underlying sense of despair, that sense of loss of hope, all of that kind of thing is gnawing away at people at, 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 in, a, in other great ways or small ways. Yeah? And spiritual traditions bring people together and they unite people with a common set of values and a common purpose. You know, Maybe we are all lost and doomed, but at least we can be lost and doomed with a friend. And that's a little bit better. <laughs> I'm sorry, listeners, to leave you with such a small hope, but thank you, Bante Sajato. No problems, no thank you. I have Maria Timon here. She's just given a beautiful speech to the uh, young people and big audience at the Parramatta Cathedral. Maria, you're with Edmund Rice Centre. I would like you to tell us about going home to your island, how you were recently shocked. We've spoken to you before on this program, but could you just tell us a little bit about going home to that special place on your with your family? Um, thank you for this opportunity to share my story on what is really happening on climate change in Kiribati and this is also applies to other Pacific Islands. Um, in 2010 when I went back to my home island um, I was very devastated and saddened to see some part of the, the village that I used to go and visit with my parents and my other siblings um, totally gone and also one of um, our graveyard was uh, underwater and this is by you know the impacts of climate change the rising sea levels and also storm surges so climate climate change is really happening in Kiribati and it's really destroying the lives of our people I've done a lot of programs with people from the Pacific who are very worried that the next COP27 won't really address yet again the loss and damage problem and the money flowing into the Green Climate Fund. Um, how strong do you think the, the vulnerable nations will be this time? I've, I've spoken to several people. Look, um, it's COP COPs are very important for our Pacific leaders because that's when they come together and support each other and try to, you know, echoing what um, they uh, experience. And unfortunately with uh, Australia, honestly I have to say that um, I'm happy that Australia already started to take serious on climate change. But to me is with um, what is the point to, you know, to do that or to commit to it when they are they are also still going to expand their gold gas uh, industry. That's that's I mean that shouldn't happen. And also with loss and damage, people in the Pacific are coming now. Um, I'm are coming up with loss and damage because it is destroying. You know what they have, what they they treasure. experience the impact of climate change so it is very unjust and I think 
It's going to be a very strong, their voice is going to be strong. They're going to be working together, all Pacific Islanders. And we need Australia to act now. Because, you know, we always see Australia as our big brother in the Pacific. And to rely on Australia to, to do something different from um, the, past, the past government. So I have a big hope that this current um, government will do something about climate change and will commit more on, take it serious and do more on climate change. The, the do more is uh, in the no. letter that we've written to the, um, the Prime Minister, we said non-proliferation of fossil yes. fuels. That's lot what the Greens are also saying, no more coal and gas. A lot of Australians are saying that, no yeah. more coal and gas. Is that what the, and there's uh, overseas they're talking a bit more about windfall tax, since now the war in Ukraine's made coal and gas and oil so much, you know, so much more profit. So the windfall tax on that could pay for the Green Fund. Do you get behind that? Or which way do you think would be the best way to get that money flowing? Look, um, look, um, the three things that our Pacific leaders um, really want Australia to do is um, stop abroad for any coal gas projects, stop public money going to those industries and get behind a fossil fuel non-profilation treaty to phase out fossil fuels. And I think we need to support this. We really need to support this and I hope that Australia can listen to, to our cry. Thank you very much, Maria. It's a great cry. And Maria is from the Edmund Rice Centre, Pacific Pacific Calling Partnership. Thank you very much. Thank you. I'm from the Lakota Nation in the geographical center of North America that we call Turtle Island. And community radio is about your community, your heart, which 3CR Community Radio is right here at 85.5 a.m. So it is digital, and I'm, I'm presuming you can you can go worldwide with it. Um, people are listening in America to you, so talk back, Australia, to the Earth. Peace with Earth. Thank you. Teokas and Ghost Horse. Community Radio is your love. Dorothy Guerrero is the head of policy with Global Justice Now. They work in solidarity with groups in the global south, in diaspora communities, and with internationalists. I hope that's you, listeners. I heard about them when they took action in London for reparations and climate justice. And I want Dorothy to tell us where the blockages are to that justice. We saw at COP26 how financing for loss and damage was blocked. And since then, as Dr. Salim Ulhaq told us last week, Pakistan is not only drowning in water, but drowning in debt. And Dorothy is going to COP27 in Egypt. I want to ask her about how getting the money to flow from the global north to the global south, how easy or hard that will be. So welcome, Dorothy. Could we start with your own country of the Philippines? Describe to us how vulnerable they are over there to climate disruption and what they need from COP27. Yeah, thank you, Vivian, for inviting me today and also for this chance of uh, explaining about loss and damage in the climate negotiation. It's it's the difficulty faced by the developing countries in fighting for this in the climate negotiation and where it is at at this point that we are preparing for the COP27 
in Egypt or in Sharm el-Sheikh, uh, that's the venue of the next climate negotiation. As you have mentioned, yes, I am from the Philippines. I grew up in a province called Bulacan. And in fact, what I remember from my childhood is that uh, putting up furniture every time there's a typhoon and there's a dam near our town that have to release the water to make sure that it will not um it will not break so as far as i remember when i was there in, in in primary school i had to help my parents bring up furniture so that they will not be damaged going to school with a wearing a flip-flop because i i have to go through floods and and put on my shoes before attending classes my parents since then moved twice uh already to to go to places where the flood will not be affected our old house uh as told by by our previous neighbors um had to be demolished because the floods starting 2012 2015 uh, nothing can nothing survive anymore because the the, the water already reached the roof uh so i have uh, it is saddening to think that the house where i grew up in no longer exists because of the flood um and now thankfully um my mother lives in a place that is no longer flooded but the rest of my relatives uh still experience that uh it, it's not just the the flooding but also for many people their life livelihoods are at stake as well uh the philippines is a rice growing country and every time there's a flood they, they people lose their crops the last one the last big one this month actually people brace for an for a signal number five typhoon so that's that's the strongest so far it's actually a new category because before the typhoon is only up to signal three so now that they had to increase the signal that means such climate induced uh calamities like typhoons droughts are getting more and more stronger and less predictable uh that is also happening in the philippines that before we can say the rainy season will be june up to august but now you could not tell anymore since 2009 2008 uh, you can also have typhoons in november and december hmm. so that's a problem for many countries so when the Philippines goes to this COP27, a country like that, very vulnerable to many types of um, climate events, what will they be demanding or wishing for, asking for? Yeah, well, the Philippines is, um, uh, uh, in terms of vulnerability, it is part of the vulnerable country groups inside the climate negotiation. It is uh, like forward most vulnerable countries it's an archipelago uh wherein most of the islands and, and and cities big cities are below sea level and um in the last 50 years the uh, the the increase in the sea level or the rise in the sea level is had been three times more so it is one of the countries that may possibly lose some of its islands so together with with indonesia for example and other archipelagic countries, uh, the Philippines with other archipelagic countries might lose a significant amount of its island. But that is also comparable to the small island states. Small island states uh, like Mal the Maldives or, or Kiribati, Cook Islands, 
uh, they are even facing the threat of losing their territories altogether. Uh, we know that as early as 2015, there are already climate refugees from, from the Carteret Islands, for example, in, in, in Kiribati or even earlier than that. So countries such as the Philippines and other developing countries, for, 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 for them, these vulnerable countries view the next climate negotiations as very important in terms of the discussions on loss and damage. Loss and damage uh, refer to the impacts of, uh, refers to the impact of climate change, wherein there are already uh, recognition that loss and damage is already, or climate change is already causing serious, and in many cases, irrevocable impacts around the world, particularly in vulnerable countries. So in the next UN climate talks, uh, the many, many of these countries are hoping that after three decades, loss and damage, or an, and specifically a loss and damage finance facility will, will, or will be negotiated and agreed. Um, I mentioned three decades because as early as 1991, when the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change uh, was established, developing countries have been talking about the need for finance to compensate and at the same time to recognize the fact that they are already adversely impacted by climate change. And in the climate negotiation, it is also a fundamental reality and, and it, is, it is acknowledged that many of these countries uh, have not caused climate change in a large scale. It is the developed and the highly industrialized countries that are mainly responsible for climate change. Yeah, well, at COP26, they did propose that um, a facility, finance facility, and the rich countries said, we'll discuss it in Egypt next year. But I believe this year in June in Bonn, you know, they wanted to take mm -hmm. this off the agenda altogether. So where's the blockage coming from? Where's the real resistance? Is it that the rich countries just don't want to deny a responsibility, historic responsibility, or is it because they haven't got the money or why? Well, the developed countries in the in the UN parlance, it is called the Annex 1 countries. So you have the 39 rich countries that are also negotiating as a block. And then you have the developing countries called G77 in China that are negotiating also as a bloc. So, so small island states are also negotiating as a bloc, as the uh, same as the least uh, developing countries. So all these are, are blocks that are pushing for the interest in the negotiation. And you are right when you say, are the rich countries blocking it? Yes, they are. And in fact, they are very recalcitrant when it comes to acknowledging their responsibilities uh, when it comes to climate change. And um, particularly because recognizing responsibility also means you have to put up finance to compensate for your responsibilities. And in fact, even the term compensation had been resisted for a long, long time because many developed countries don't want to, to be obliged that, 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 that they have to compensate for the damage that they have caused. But uh, thankfully, in the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change, climate finance is seen as an obligation. So despite the fact that many developed countries would rather wanted to talk about their donation, their development aid, 
to the developing countries, the UN papers and agreements are very clear. It is an obligation by developed and which or the rich countries which are historically responsible for climate change to the developing countries. It is their obligation to extend financial um, climate finance to developing countries as well as technologies to help them to adjust and at the same time to uh, to 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 address climate change uh, both the 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 irreversible impact of climate change as well as the tangible and intangible impacts of climate change tangible are is often the 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 emphasized aspect of this loss and damage because tangible means when there's a typhoon then the then the different ministries will calculate what is the impact when it comes to lost crops or damaged buildings but the intangible uh, losses there are the lives lost. The, the, there is no way that families can get over a loss of a father or a mother or, or children or relatives uh, due, to, due to climate change um, impacts. So, so also when, when we talk about culture, culture, a big impact on climate also is that when you lose a territory, uh, people also have affinity to those territories, like what I mentioned about my parents. Um, now my mother is 80 years old, and she often talk about the fact that when you move to a place when you're 60 or 70, it is very difficult to gain new friends. And most of your friends are in the, in the place that you left behind. Imagine when you talk about the whole territory being lost, that people from that territory, when they move to another place, then it's a loss of identity as well, a loss of all the memories. Uh, well, the memories will not be lost, but a loss of those physical um, uh, uh, mountains, trees, the streets that you used to know. So those those have no price. So when we talk of loss and damage, it is both the tangible and intangible losses and damages. I am not in love, but I'm open to persuasion. When you think of community, uh, think of 3CR. When you think of radio, think of 3CR. This is Joan Armour Trading asking you to support your community radio station, 3CR, the only alternative. We're talking to Dorothy Guerrero from Global Justice Now in UK. But I'm, I'm frightened that this becomes just too hard. Just we saw floods in Germany last year. We've, the the, the um, Annex One countries are also suffering now the climate change on their own mm -hmm. shores. And they're all crying poor. They're saying, oh, we can't bail out our own people. Florida, you know, hurricanes in Florida mm -hmm. just the other day. So I think it's going to be that the rich world suddenly pulls up the drawbridge and says, no, we're just going to look after ourselves. We're not going to take any more immigrants in from climate-affected countries. Mm -hmm. They'll just have to work it out themselves. And that's uh, that's on the horizon for me to do. And there's another problem, which is 
you know, the sort of technology transfer and mitigation work that was meant to be $100 billion a year since 2010, I think they 2009. Yeah. 2009. Yeah. That hasn't started to flow. And we've had yeah. people like Dr. Salim Ulhaq on the program and Professor Kevin Anderson both saying, look, this is a drop in the bucket. $100 billion is nothing mm -hmm. in the way of what's needed, the scale that's needed to get countries off coal, oil and gas, yeah. to get all the yeah. transport system off oil, for example, to get all the energy production away from coal. That $100 billion a year is a drop in the ocean. It's not enough. We need trillions. And yet mm -hmm. still there's a blockage. Why yeah. is that? Because to me, it's self-interest. The rest of the world is going to go down together. You know, we're going to go yeah. down together. I'm, I'm, happy that, I'm happy that you brought that up because indeed the the there are um, big floods that are also happening in developed countries now. There's also the heat waves that uh, killed many people in France, for example. But then let us also think that the developing countries have been suffering far worse and also for a longer time. And at the same time, they are the least responsible for climate change. So that is a very, very important principle in the negotiation. So that um, vulnerable countries or, or, or the developing countries in the least developed countries are suffering far too long now for, uh, for, for a, a phenomena that they are least responsible for. And I have mentioned earlier about the historic um, um, responsibilities of countries that although people might say, because that's the first reaction, that ah, Germany is also flooded, the, the parts of the UK was also flooded this year. Uh, but the, the fact is there is money. If we look at where, at, at the expenses for 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 uh, for huge concerts, for example, or or for other events, there there is money, and at the same time, if you mentioned about corporations, we should also remember that um, we have mentioned this in in part of our global justice now briefing, that if we talk of only the top five oil companies, altogether, they have cost ten percent. Of um of climate change or the increase in the temperature, but then at the same time, when 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 it comes to owning up to to these many people already call it climate crimes, they they had been funding a lot of denialism since the seventies. So for so long, corporations have fought uh, um hard when it comes to countries recognizing climate change as a reality. But now, if we see in the last three years, there is a global recognition that climate change is happening. It's a, it's a, it's a global problem. It must be addressed globally. We've, uh, we, have, we have already seen six inter-government uh, inter panel on climate change. Yeah. And every time there is such report the, the scientific proof that the impacts as we have seen both both the the slow and the quick impacts of climate change have been really really scary and and the thing is that we don't have too much time left since the Paris Agreement in 2015 uh, people are the, the governments are saying 
that we have to keep the global average warming to 1.5 degrees centigrade. Yeah. We don't have much time anymore to keep the global average warming to 1.5 degrees centigrade. We are now at 1.2. At 1.2, look at all the damages that is being done. In yeah. in Australia, you have bushfires. You're, you're oh. experiencing bushfires. More than a million um, animals died. And then also that's another intangible impacts of climate change because they don't put prices on what the, the, the species that are being lost when, right. it, when there are bushfires, for example. They are not accounting for this. So there, we have really to look at, at the fight in the, I already call it fight because it has been a three decades fight that the yeah. rich countries has been blocking the, the discussion of climate finance, the discussion of the climate finance facilities, even the loss and damage. Uh, this principle has been around since the 1990, but the term loss and damage was only recognized in 2007 in the Bali negotiation. The, 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 the climate facility was only um, put in the negotiation last year, and they're still blocking it. So three decades is more than enough for these delays, for these uh, setting aside this issue that I am really, really hopeful that after three decades, this will be addressed in Egypt. And, yeah. and, and that is why loss and damage is the big issue in Egypt and, and rightly so, because the developing countries had, had been talking and, and fighting for this and it has been a, a lot of conflicts on the on, on this discussion on this issue because many countries for the for many many decades and all is only viewing the climate talks as how do we stabilize greenhouse gas emission uh so last loss and damage and finance was not put to the fore but this time uh, starting well where the discussion started in glasgow and in in egypt that will be the the center of the discussion and I'm happy for that. And I really hope that this time there will be positive results because I'm afraid the power of the rich nations of the rich countries are quite strong. The US, the UK, where I'm based now, the EU countries, they are blocking this. Yeah. And, and now they, they found a new excuse. They're talking about the fact that we have a war in Europe. Uh, we need to allocate money to, to help Ukraine. We need to uh, maybe delay a bit our plans on 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 stopping the use of gas yeah. and and which is which is crazy <clears throat> because climate climate change is a problem that we could not stop anymore no. and it is happening there were tipping points that we already that the scientists are already discussing yeah well i think most listeners will know this many thanks to dorothy querrero from global justice now and for the music that she sent us the filipino song by Joey Ayala.
Community Radio, 855 AM. Dorothy Guerrero is the Head of Policy with Global Justice Now. Dorothy, I'd like to shift a bit now. Your area is in corporate accountability. And I'd like you to tell us about some of the groups you work with around the world who want a climate damages tax on fossil fuel corporations. Let's talk about specifics, you know, ways to curb their work. Yeah, well, that is also uh, a continuation of what you've asked about where's the money. Um, At the moment, the UK is putting up uh, or committed to a three billion a year of climate finance. But that three billion a year is, is significantly, catastrophically short. Uh, it is not even a fair share of the UK 
when they talk about fulfilling responsibilities. Actually, the 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 UK should put up forty six billion as its appropriate climate finance, given its historic contribution to global warming. Um, in in uh, this month, actually, Denmark pledged um uh, uh what is equivalent to twelve million pounds as a climate finance, and this is the first time that the developed countries. Uh, say this is the fund we're allocated for climate finance. Scotland. Could you just, sorry, sorry to interrupt you, but could you say that again? I didn't hear it was billion or million. Denmark. Million. Yeah, million, million. Million. Uh, not just pledge, put up. They they yes. made it available, so it's very clear okay. that they are making available twelve million pounds. Um. As climate finance. Yes. So this is, I don't know how how much is it in Australian um, denomination. Yeah, no, don't but, worry. <laughs> we will <laughs> yeah, we but... make the calculation. But yeah, also Scotland, the Scottish but... government also committed two million pounds to Climate Justice Fund. So yeah. this is the first time that governments are saying, okay, we will start putting funds for, for climate finance. The 100 billion that you have mentioned, Yes. This was the promise in 2009 during COP15 in Copenhagen. We are now talking about COP27. This promise was made in COP15 in 2009 in Copenhagen. And actually, that $100 billion is not enough. The, 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 the developing countries in the negotiation, the G77 in China, were talking about if we cost uh, if, if the damages and the loss were rightfully costed, we actually need between three to eleven trillion dollars yes. to address climate change. So all this, all this money that are being put up now by the government are really a fraction, a drop in the bucket yes. of, of what is actually needed. But but also Could you stop there a second. Could you just distinguish? I think we've got a bit mixed up here. I want the listeners to be very clear. There's a fund which is for loss and damage. That is to help you repair when there's damage. But there's this other fund for the transition, for mitigation. Mm -hmm. You know, to, mm -hmm. to transition as well. away from high emissions. Some some countries don't have great emissions anyway, but but others do mm -hmm. because they're dependent on coal, oil, and gas. Where's the money coming from that? And I thought your proposition that was a climate damages tax on fossil fuel corporations so the corporations have to pay for the damage uh for mm -hmm. for the climate damage yeah yeah that is correct yeah. because that is where yeah. you will answer the question where will the money come from yeah um there are funds you're right there's an adaptation fund there's a mitigation fund there's a green climate funds there is also a global environment facility and there's a least developed country facility. And on top of that, there's also the loss and damage facility. Well, the, the reason for this is that these discussion on climate finance, as I mentioned, have gone for three decades. And, and this, this discussion of windfall tax um, for corporations to pay this huge amount of tax is a new discussion because for so long corporations don't want to recognize that they are part of the problem. In fact, they are uh, a big part of the problem, especially fossil fuel corporations. So there is um, um, a call from developing countries that in 
Egypt, there should be a discussion of a windfall tax from corporations so that they will allocate money from their um, uh, from their earnings. Uh, this is a new part of a new global taxes as a way of funding loss and damage. Um, and we will see in Egypt what will be the what will come out of this. So this is called windfall taxes for a global taxes. There's also the possibility when we talk about global tax, a carbon emission on a tax on air travel and then other highly polluting activities. Yeah. And in the commitment of many countries, they're only committing about reducing uh, their, um, uh, their, their uh, on mitigation, they're talking about reducing their, um, their emissions. But the other side of the coin is, yes, reduce emission, especially if you're a big polluter and you are a historic polluter, but at the same time, increase your, your, your climate finance as well. And we should talk about appropriate climate finance because as you've mentioned, 100 billion uh, dollar a year, which should have started in 2020, we are now 2022 and it's not yet happening. It's not happening yet. Yeah. But listeners, we're talking to Dorothy Guerrero from Global Justice Now in UK. Well, look, in the World Inequality Report, that was in your report as well, I read the 10%, a 10% wealth tax on carbon assets just owned by global multimillionaires alone would generate yeah. $100 billion. And I don't know, you see, unless we have a Russian revolution style shift, <laughs> how can you imagine this being achieved? Well, it takes a long time before, well, as even recognition of climate change took a long time. From the 70s, there's a lot of climate denialism. Uh, now, at long last, uh, people are seeing climate change as a number one issue, as a big problem that must be addressed and must be addressed globally. So now we are starting to call for the richest 10% of the population uh, that are responsible for almost half of the total lifestyle consumption emission. So when we talk about the rich people taking a jet to attend a party in another continent or another country, that's a lifestyle consumption emission. When we talk about the fact as well, and this is from um, uh, a, Swiss, um, a Swiss bank saying that if we think about the how much people in Europe are earning, so those who are earning $100,000 a year are part already of the richest 10%. Because if we talk about global income disparity, uh, we're talking about the whole of Europe actually responsible but then of course when it comes to that's average when it comes who is to who is the most responsible then we point to the richest 10 percent we point there's a difference between in the u.s people living in manhattan or the rich people that party in manhattan and and those that are in the in the in the, in the bronx so so that's a big a huge difference and if we also talk about australia for example uh australia have been saying that we're allocating funds for for, 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 for aid to, to, to help the small islands that are your neighbors, then, then that's also a part of, of admitting that rich countries are more, are more responsible, more capable. That's why in the UN climate negotiation, they're also talking about 
the the differences between responsibilities and also differences between capacities and sadly those that are least capable are also the most impacted and the least responsible so yeah. so that's the main principle that must be repeated over and over again and um the climate negotiation it happens every year so we have this opportunity to repeat this message every year uh but it takes a long time before majority recognize it and the governments act on it and the corporations uh that are also responsible to to finally also admit that they have to put to, to put money uh for their responsibilities and and another aspect of this is many corporations would rather want uh that these will be you know the gold posts would be moved for many many years because they want to delay and they also wanted to present themselves even these 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 fossil fuel corporations they're they're claiming that we're actually funding for for adaptation we're actually funding for just transition but if you look at their books uh what part of their of their national na or their annual funds will will be set aside for for just transition um many actually don't balance their books they talk about something they they want to present themselves as a responsible company and actually also um addressing the climate but when you look at where do they actually put their money is it is it also for appropriate action appropriate impacts um appropriate uh funding um then that's another story that will need will require another 30 minutes <laughs> of yeah. interview well, we have a, uh, just got a few minutes left, but I'd just like to move now from that international global level down to the street. And I know your group, so Global Justice Now, you do a lot of campaigning and you in solidarity with a lot of civil society groups, I imagine, around the world. I'll just tell you where I was today with a small group of people and our dog. Uh, I went to outside a bank. It's the National Australia Bank. And they are financing a coal company. It's just a pure coal company. They just export coal and they shouldn't be exporting coal and that bank shouldn't be financing them. And the bank has all these green credentials and, you know, mission statements about how they're all on the side of climate, you know, not not ruining the climate. Well, we one of the a couple of people went in. I didn't go in because I I had the dog, but other people went in and spoke quietly to the bank manager, and she became very flustered and very upset that they were in her bank, and um and she raised her voice and she got angry, and then they came out. And these are all professional, quiet sort of polite people, and one of the customers came out and said I was very very shocked that the bank manager got so angry. And um, you know, I hope she hasn't called the police. Or you know, it was <laughs> it was a it was an angry altercation, and it was like us trying to bring a story in there that they didn't want to have. They didn't want that story on their image. And I think eventually the banks and the financial institutions, even at the highest level, will lose social license. They'll have to. But this is too slow. And I I always feel very naive in these things. I'm standing here with a placard and my dog and other respectable people. And what what what's the point of this little engagement? You know, what's the point of it? But I'd like to know you're a you know, you go through a lot of campaigns, I would think, and I'd like you to tell listeners all around the world these campaigns are happening and much braver people than me are on frontline campaigns, you know, really on front lines. 
where it's dangerous. But what do you have to say to local campaigners? Well, it is very, very important that we we uh, reach as much people as possible on this. Um, it is important that people see, and it it, it is uh, also a recent phenomenon that we have seen kids joining climate marches. You have the Fridays for Future uh, with mobilizing tens of thousands of school children talking about climate. Um, but it is also important that people also recognize and understand that we have to make the companies accountable, the banks accountable, because it is also a reality that that uh, financial institutions would rather invest on fossil fuels instead of funding renewable energy, for example, instead of funding wind energy or solar energy, which is less damaging, they continue putting our uh, uh, pension money, for example, uh, or, or, or university um, stocks would, would rather go to oil companies. So, so individual people on the, on the level of where do your pension go if you're a retiree? Or where will your savings go? Where do your bank put your money as investment? So it is very important that we don't just leave financial institutions on, on doing these things. We have to be more responsible. And many banks actually ask their depositors or, or rather put your money in, in something like cooperative banks. I myself put my money on the on Nationwide Housing Association, wherein every year I'm asked, uh, uh, although I am a very small voice, I don't have enough savings or money in the bank, uh, we are at least asked, and, and there was a report being made, where do my bank put their money, uh, put our money as investment? So that's one side of the coin. The other as well is that how do companies behave? Because another part of our campaign is looking at how these fossil fuel companies even sue governments when they see that governments are finally taking actions. Uh, for example, the Dutch government was sued by Unilever company, for example, because they are saying that by 2030, they will no longer use coal. So coal companies see this as, oh, that will impact our earnings. So they have the power because there's an energy charter treaty wherein governments are signatory to. Corporations have power to sue governments while governments can't even sue these corporations. So these kind of things that are happening must be known to people and it must be understandable that it is no longer just, you know, let's segregate our ways. Of course it helps, but even if, if we segregate for a hundred years, this will not solve these kind of problems. Well, look, I think we'll have to come back to you, Dorothy, after the COP27 and do a bit more because there's a lot more in your organisation. So we've been talking to Dorothy Guerrero from Global Justice Now, and I'll put on the website all the links to their petitions and act actions that they advise us to take. Thank you very much, Dorothy. Thank you very much, Viviane. I am so happy that you listened to the Climate Action Radio Show. If you find our website at climateaction3cr, please consider taking some of the actions listed there. I'd like to thank our guests today, the Venerable Bhante Sujato, Wiradjuri Elder, Mr. Paul Newman, and Maria Timon from the Pacific Calling Partnership. Also, many thanks to Dorothy Guerrero from Global Justice Now, and for the music that she sent us 
which was a Filipino song by Joey Ayala. My name is Vivian Langford. Good night and good luck. This is coal. Don't be afraid. The Don't treasure. be scared. It's coal. It's coal. Tune in every Monday at 5pm to hear the Climate Action Radio Show. Hi, I'm Jeffrey. I'm Alphonse. I'm Erwin. And we, we are, are from, from the Voice of West Papua. Tuesday 6.30 until 7.30pm. News and music from West Papua. Yeah.